Maybe it started with steel magnolias or fried green tomatoes. Or maybe it started with the Beach Boys divvying the women of the country up into California girls, Midwest farmers' daughters, and Southern girls. Or maybe it goes back to Gone with the Wind highlighting strong women in hoop skirts. Or maybe even farther. But however it started, there's long been a mystique around Southern women. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I'm talking with best-selling author Helen Ellis, who literally wrote the book on the Southern Lady Code. Helen grew up in Alabama but moved to New York 25 years ago. So we dive into the differences between Manhattan and Tuscaloosa and the role coded language plays. She's also a semi-professional poker player, so we discuss how she uses her appearance as a housewife in pearls to take advantage of her opponents. We chatted at Alabama Booksmith, one of the state's great independent bookstores, during a stop on her book tour. So sit back, relax, and listen up. This is The Reckon Interview. Well, hi, Helen Ellis. Thank you for coming on to The Reckon Interview. Uh, we are talking today about your new book, Southern Lady Code, uh, but you have also written uh, American Housewife, uh, a best-selling novel. As, or a best-selling collection of short stories, I should say, <laughs> and a novel, uh, Eating the Cheshire Cat, which took place, I believe, at the University of Alabama. Uh, so you're, you are a native Alabamian who's lived in New York for over two decades now? 25 years. 25 years. So are you a New Yorker or are you a Southerner? I'm a New Yorker with a Southern accent. A New Yorker with a Southern accent. Okay. <laughs> well, then let's talk about the Southern Lady Code. What is Southern Lady Code? Southern Lady Code is something I came up with, which is if you don't have something nice to say, you say something not so nice in a nice way. Right. So, for example, I would say, she's a character, which means she's a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or he's uh, an archivist, you know, which means hoarder. Or he's a night owl, which means he does weird things in his basement while we sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the one that all of us are familiar with, people wear it on t-shirts, bless your heart. Yes, bless your heart. Can mean anything from, thank you so much for coming and scraping the dead squirrel carcasses out of my <laughs> roof. Or it can mean, you poor thing, you know, oh, you decided to frost your own tips, bless your heart. <laughs> or it can mean, forget you. <laughs> right. And then, of course, I mean, I think people forget this when they kind of talk about the sarcasm of it, but it can mean, you know, genuinely like, oh, that's so sweet. Thank yes, you for thinking yes, of me. Yes, 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 yes. And so, uh, yeah, that, that one, of course, we're all familiar with. But uh, in your book, uh, it's a collection of essays. Um, obviously, American Housewife was short stories, mm -hmm. but these essays also at times read like short stories and you take on different names. Are they all true? Are they, they are all, all true. Okay. And with each essay, when I would finish the essay, I, I had each edited by my editor one at a time. So at the end of the collection, we said what's missing and we would you know, we added what we thought was missing. But if you were in one of the essays, whether you just walked on or you were the whole, you know, main character of the essay, I gave you a final draft and I said, do you want me to change your name? Do you want me to publish this? If you want to change your name, we can change it to anything you want. And if you don't want me to publish it, I'll write something else. Well, and you have this one story where, I mean, the kind of premise of the story is the fun that you're having with changing people's <laughs> names and you're giving everybody new personalities. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's about, uh, is it the Omaha Freeway? The Topeka Freeway. I'm sorry, the Topeka Freeway. 
And obviously, all of the characters have been changed, and yes. some of their identities have been yes. changed. I go by the name of Bobby Sue Gentry. Bobby Sue Gentry, a great <laughs> Southern woman's name. Yes, yes. And that stemmed from a real dinner party where that story was told. And the idea was my husband would never be able to tell a story about a free way in this company, right. um, especially in front of me, um, because, you know, I am the only woman in the world for him. So if someone offered to sell him odor eaters at the Dwayne Wayne Pharmacy, he couldn't tell that story. Right, right, right. Um, so that, I think, is the only one. No, there's two. That one, um, everybody's name has changed because nobody wanted to publicly admit that they had a three-way. Although I did just have a private book party in Manhattan, and the... Mr. Topeka and yeah. Chi Chi were there, and I said, "Okay, it's really just thirty close friends. Can we introduce you as Mr. Topeka and Chi Chi?" <laughs> and they took great pride in going around and saying, "I'm Mr. Topeka," and many hands were pulled back <laughs> in, fear of, <laughs> in fear of germs. And the other one where people changed their name was Peggy Sue got marijuana okay. because yeah. the two ladies who helped me smoke while their families were out of town didn't want their families to know. Of course. <laughs> no, not this day and age. Nobody can know about marijuana. <laughs> you have a lot of fun with language in the book. And I also kind of wonder, I mean, Southern Lady Code, of course, you talked about there's the idea that words mean different things. Mm -hmm. But when I first read the title, I also thought like, oh, this is the code that Southern ladies have to live by. Yes. And you kind of go into that a little bit, like um, in uh, in a chapter where you talk about choosing not to be a parent. Yes. Uh, you talk about asking for birth control mm -hmm. and abstinence culture. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, do you think that w we as Southerners create these euphemisms for things uh, in order to live up to these rules that we put in place, or do that? Do the rules follow the language? That is a question I have not been asked before, and that is a good question. Do the rules follow the language? I think with that story in particular, there's a lot of code in there. The code is, if it happens, it happens, right. which was my husband and my response when people would ask us, when are you going to have kids? And we've been married 24 years, and we chose not to have kids, and it turns out if it happens, it happens means we don't want kids. And... It was a way of sort of, the language I think actually worked as a, a guard or a buffer or a timeout to stop the question or the next question. Yeah. And yeah, so does that help? Yeah, and there's another <laughs> example that I'm thinking of. Um, you talk about, I don't remember if you put it quite this way, but you basically said, well, we don't have gay men in the South. We have uh, Southern effeminate. Southern well, I think those are two different things. You know, I grew up in, I, I was, I left Alabama in 1988. Right. So the exact words were, when I was growing up in Alabama, there were no gay men. Right. But of course there were <laughs> all around me. But people were not comfortable being out. Some men are just Southern effeminate. Think right. of Anthony Bouvier on designing women or Chris Chrisley. <laughs> right. Um, he is very, very procreative. <laughs> but he is very comfortable with mm -hmm. his feminine side. And... I grew up with a grandfather who collected carnival glass, played the piano, and lived with another man most yeah. of my life. And they were never considered gay. They were just friends, bachelors. And the whole point, of, one of the points of writing that piece was to sort of explore the notion that he was, in fact, gay. Yeah, right. So, and you think about letting people see the essays before, that's my 
mother's father, and he died 25 years ago. And when I wrote that piece, which was the second to last piece I wrote in the collection, because it's something I wanted to write about for ages, I flew home with my sister who had yeah. read it, and we sat down with my parents, and I read it to her so that she could see it was written from love. And she just laughed through the whole thing. Yeah. So he would love the attention. <laughs> Good. <laughs> which he would. Well, and you talk about his... Um, Partner, and I guess this kind of gets to the question about language and, and culture, because you know, if we if there are some things that we don't talk about, mm-hmm. then it makes it harder for people yes. to come out of the closet. If you yes. talk around around the topic, then that might be what led to people being in the closet. But you talk about his um, his living partner mm-hmm. that nobody mm-hmm. referred to as being his partner, mm-hmm. and then no. after he passed, uh, y'all never spoke with him again. He, it was really shocking. He moved and moved to Florida and moved in with a different older man. Yeah. Um, and they were together at least 20 years. So He you, and your grandfather? Yes. And yes. so, I mean, was he was he welcome? Was he, uh, he was always welcome, yeah. yes. I mean, I, again, I, as far back as I can remember, my grandmother, his wife died when I was an infant. And as far back as I can remember, Norman, not yeah. his real name, right. <laughs> was in the, in the picture. At graduation, at family reunions, at, at Thanksgiving, he was always there and, and having a great time. And and then I think when Grandpapa died, maybe we admitted that, uh, my mother admitted that yeah. he was gay. And I think it was many, many years where she felt for her mother mm-hmm. having been married. Sure. Um, and just... It was hard. It was a little bit hard for her. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. even you look at Gone with the Wind. Yes. And, and in the book, it's more explicit that, or more implied, I guess, that some of the characters are gay. And it's always been yes. an argument in Southern literature. Yes. Uh, but we just kind of talk around it. I just reread at The Outsiders. Yeah. And I thought, uh, Pony Boy and Johnny, <laughs> they, are, they are in love. <laughs> yeah. And, why, and what I thought, another interesting part, and I don't want to you know, necessarily call out your grandfather, but you, yeah. you talked about um, uh, that he would use the N-word quite liberally. Yes, yes. And yes. so, you know, these sort of interesting dichotomies where you yes. can be open in one way or, or, or free in one very, way, but not Very necessarily. judgmental, and he was very, he, I mean, very racist. Sure. But very much, but very much a gentleman. Um, and also very judgmental when it came to the right way to do things. So, for example, I always wrote my thank you notes, so I was always in good. Yeah. But the, my sister and um, the cousins didn't necessarily do that, so they stopped getting their little money envelopes. You know, every birthday we would get a birthday card that had the money of our age in it. So yeah. if I was 18, I get $18, 32, I get $32. And my sister never got more than thirteen dollars. Because she stopped writing. She stopped. But to really like teach her a lesson, he would send her the money envelopes with no money. Oh, no, that's that's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you said you consider yourself a New Yorker with mm-hmm. a Southern accent. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is a this book uh, really kind of deconstructs a lot of the Southern norms and mm-hmm. Southern uh, women stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, yeah, I think it's fair to also say that you're something of a New York socialite. Is that 
fair? I mean, you, a socialite is too, too big of a word. Too big of a word. But I, you host parties. I enjoy you, having a party. And I think if you come to my parties, they are not the typical okay. Upper East Side sure. party. There are not a lot of homemade cheese logs. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and and uh, spiral baked ham <laughs> okay. on the Upper East Side. They, do they have more of a Southern flair too? Yes. The secret ingredient is never love. It's mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> Usually that is an answer. What is in this mayonnaise? <laughs> mm-hmm. That is true. That's definitely true in the South. Um, are there similarities between New York, I guess New York high society and Southern high society? See, I never was part of Southern high society. I'm really not part of New York high yeah. society. Well, let's say mid-society. Mid-society. <laughs> I, I know I live a, a good life, um, and I'm appreciative of that, especially coming from the upbringing in Alabama. So are there similarities? Everybody gossips. Right. Well, and Everybody people kind of say gossip. New Yorkers are direct and Southerners Which just are, means rude. are rude. What does that mean? I, I guess New York's a city of millions of people, yes. surely. And then, I mean, and probably tens of thousands of Southerners. Um, yes, yes. When you moved up to New York after graduating mm-hmm. from college, did you move up there looking in some ways to kind of shed the South, or were you looking for a corner of the South in New York? I was looking to be a writer. Yeah. I thought, that's how you become a writer. You move to New York City. That is not how you have to become a writer. Right. (laughs) But that is what I thought. I thought, that's where all the writers are, so that's where I need to go. And I, you know, moved there at 22 um, and met another 22-year-old through a chain of Southern mothers, because there was no internet, no phones, I was told you're going to be at Grand Central Station at the clock, at 12 o'clock, and a nice lady named Stephanie is going to tap you on the shoulder, and you're going to live together. Oh, wow. And that is exactly what we did. Where was she from? She was from Alabama as well. Okay. And what did she do? (laughs) She went to New York because that's where you go to become a model. Oh, okay. All right. That's right. New York is where you go to become That's right. That's right. That's right. It's so funny that... I've been in New York for 25 years, and what I'm really writing about is my Southern roots. Right. Well, and, you know, so I moved to Chicago for college, Mm -hmm. and then um, later after college, I moved to D.C., and I moved Mm -hmm. to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and you get to these places, and at some point, people talk about code switching, and they usually talk about it as it refers to African Americans or other racial Mm -hmm. minorities, but... Is there some code switching for Southerners? Because, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I'm, maybe I shouldn't say y'all because people are going to make fun of me. Or maybe I shouldn't say, bless <laughs> d- your heart. Did you ever try to mask your Southern I did. identity? I tried in the beginning. Yeah. And then I just fell back into it like a beanbag chair. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I embraced what I'm really proud of being from the South. And I'm proud of being different. And in a way, what I get is the accent is mocked. Right. It's mocked on a regular basis. And either people think I'm stupid hmm. or they think I'm really nice. Right. Or they think you are not around from you know here. And I always say, it's not a Bronx accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that the way you judge me helps me judge you. Sure. So I keep that accent. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, uh, I at some point you kind of come full circle. You've been made fun of a of it for enough that you just lean into it and you yes. kind of start embracing like, oh no, this is very much who I am and, mm-hmm. and you uh, become an unlikely ambassador, I mm-hmm. guess. And, you know, in your case, probably helps to be <laughs> <Gorgeous>. underestimated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of 
hours on three goals. Does it help to be underestimated because you are also a professional, semi-professional poker player? A very well-respected amateur. A very well-respected I got a good, a good record. Yeah, that helps a lot. But <laughs> you taught. Um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Colson Whitehead helped yes, play poker. Yes, a good time winner. He's won everything. Oh, he has a way. He he, he's very good. Uh, and <laughs> he in his, writes good. In his book, The Noble Hustle, he describes you this way. He says, in a male-dominated game where female players often affect an Annie Oakley tomboy thing to fit in, the housewife player was an unlikely sight. The dudes flirted and condescended, and then this prim creature in a black sweater and pearls walloped them. <laughs> A lot of people don't think women will bluff, you said, Helen, but you were bluffing the moment that you walk in the room. Is that, do you put on... I want that to be a mark. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a nice obituary for anybody, it's, I think. I'm going to yes, let's all take note. <laughs> do, you, do you lean into the character more when you are playing, or are you pretty much yourself? I am pretty much myself. Yeah. If I was going to lean into being a poker player, you know, it's only 4% of the field that's women. And if I was going to lean in, you would want to disappear in a way. Women, I see a lot of hoodie sweatshirts, sunglasses, jeans, and then you also see the opposite, you know, low-cut uh, blouses, wonder bras, full faces of makeup, rings, perfume. You know, you see both tacks, and I really am most myself in yeah. every way when I play poker. I dress the way I normally dress, like I'm hosting a dinner party. Right, right, right. <laughs> and um, it's very much that scenario. There's 10 of us sitting around the table. But I love it because, you know, as a stereotypical Southerner, it's a true stereotype and that I am a very friendly person, very talkative. We like to entertain. But the poker table, I do not speak unless spoken to. You don't drop any bless your hearts. I don't, dress, I don't say a word. Okay. And... I can be aggressive, I can be confrontational, I can reach across the table and slit your throat <laughs> and never say a word. Yeah. I can be powerful and I, I, in a very quiet way, you know, it's like wearing a pearl bracelet and brass knuckles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. And time disappears, time flies, which is kind of the way it is when I'm writing as Do well. you, I mean, you said you're an amateur, but have you played a man's circuit? Do you play? Oh yeah, yeah. I play, yeah. Um, I think I have about 30 caches. Okay, wow. Um, and I've got my ticket book for June 1st to oh, go really? to the World Series of yeah. Poker. Yeah, okay. Which I just live for. It's like summer camp for degenerates. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Coming up after the break, Helen outlined the moment her career took a turn for the worse and how a Pulitzer Prize winner helped her find the courage to write again. We also look at the differences between how women talk in the South, the North, and the Midwest. When are being passive-aggressive, you just have to listen. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. What does Alabama football really mean to them? Alabama football is such a, like, a shared group experience. It's fun to be a part of, and like all those memories get to last forever. The new podcast, Bammers, takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Everybody loves to win. We're winning. Like, why wouldn't you want to be an Alabama football fan right now? The thrill of victory. When it hit, I mean, it was as if a damn bomb went off in the Georgia Dome. The agony of defeat. The most hateful thing an Alabama fan can feel is average. We look at sidewalk alumni, 
just because I will dig a ditch from eight to five and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Immigrants who love the tide. I'm from Egypt. I love this town. Uh, I love Alabama football and Rota. Game day weddings. I always said I wouldn't get married in the fall because of football season. So the first date I looked at was the bye week. Bama fans who live in Auburn. To me, I think Auburn is the complete dump of the state of Alabama. And so much more. I've always had this feeling that the people root against Alabama around the country, not because of Nick Saban or not because of the University of Alabama, but because of the fan base. It's funny because it brings people together, and I don't think otherwise. They would talk to each other. I think that's a powerful thing, especially in a state with the history of Alabama, with slavery and civil rights and all that. With people like Paul Feinbaum, Tim Brando, Laura Rutledge, Marcus Spears, and Alabama football fans across the world. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the obsession of Alabama football fans. Coming soon. Um, in your first book of short stories, mm-hmm. American Housewife, you kind of address the fact that and, and also in Southern Lady Code, you address the fact that, you know, you you move to New York and you have some remarkably early success. You you get your first novel yes. uh, published and then you have, what, a 15-year drought before you're able to get another book published? That is the polite way of saying complete failure, <laughs> <laughs> which I have no problem saying. I, publi- I sold a book at 27, yeah. right out of graduate school, but I started in graduate school, six figures. 16 wow. city tour, you know, very old school success. And then I wrote another book and nobody would publish it. Then I wrote another book, nobody would publish it. Then I wrote another one and nobody would publish that. And then I quit writing for three years and nobody cares. <laughs> so like when I met Colson Whitehead to coach him, he, I was never even introduced as a writer. Right. You know, he didn't know me as a writer. He knew me as a poker playing housewife. Yeah. Um, I remember when that book came out, The Noble Hustle, thinking, reading a paragraph like you just read, thinking, well, if this is the way I go down, you know, being part of someone else's art, I am really cool with that. Yeah. But seeing him portray me that way, and I say it in the acknowledgments of American Housewife, just reminded me that I'm brave. Yeah. And I thought, well, if I can walk into a room of thousands of men who want to kill me, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can sit down all alone and write a little story. And that's when I started writing American Housewife. Where in this time period had you started your Twitter account? I started, you were also well known for the Twitter yes, account. Yes, I started the Twitter account probably right around the time when I was coaching him. Okay. Um, and we should say it's at what I do it's all It's what I do all day because I, people would meet me and during this 15-year lapse, I wouldn't say, you know, when they say, what do you do? I wouldn't say writer because that's the next question is, well, what have you written? And then yeah. you have to say, it's 15 years ago. Here all these manuscripts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I would be very honest because that's just the easiest thing to do. And I would say housewife. And if there was a second question, which there usually wasn't, it was, what do you do all day? Right. So unbeknownst to my husband, I started this anonymous Twitter account that became public once the book came out. Um, and it's still my Twitter account called What I Do All Day. Yeah. And I started tweeting like about what I did all day. And I 
taught myself to write in a new way. You know, I went to graduate school because that's the right way. I wrote 1,500 words at 5 a.m. before my secretarial job because that's the right way. I sold the book to Scribner, went on the road because that's the right way. And then I did that over and over and failed and failed and failed. And so with Twitter, my motto was, if it's not retweeted, it's deleted. And I still have that, that motto because Twitter is the best editor. Well, and also, I mean, you had been writing novels, and yes. Twitter is the shortest yes. of short stories. Oh, yes. And That's so, very smart. <laughs> I that. And, I'm and, a genius. And your next two books were short stories and essays. Yes. So and I were... can't even imagine writing a novel. Yeah. I think about writing a novella. 30,000 words is just my sweet spot. <laughs> well, the last story in um, in American Housewife is, is, is pretty much a novella. It's, it's this... My novel is brought to you by the good people at Tampa. And it is hilarious. Uh, and it's... It's like this dystopian, I guess, writer's nightmare where you are corporately sponsored by Tampax to write a book and they increasingly take over, not yes. you, but the, the narrator's life. If you miss your deadline, your husband might go missing. <laughs> Tampax is, is everywhere. They're going to uh, bribe your neighbors because one thing women need, it's sanitary. <laughs> That's why I keep thinking about none of these zombie shows, The Walking Dead, right. where are all the tampons? That, that, yeah, they could stop a lot of you, bleeding. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, if, if I had the zombie apocalypse, I'm going to need tampons, thank you Jesus, <laughs> of sunscreen and a ponytail holder. Well, there's those, your next novel, that's right. so you got it. That's right. Yeah. Or somebody should call you for your TV show. That's that. right, that's right. And then in the lead up to this book, you also launched a, a podcast. Um, I did, just for fun. Yeah. It's called Southern Lady Code. Okay. It's a mini podcast. So, you break down a lot of these words. Yeah, I, I do three minutes, on, usually about three minutes on a different code. So for example, one would be as long as you're reading, mm-hmm. which means I hate what you're reading. <laughs> or another might be, where are you going to hang it? Which means, is that art? <laughs> or your home is so festive. I get where you're going to hang it for my wife, a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Where All of my art winds up in my closet. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the differences between New York and the South, because mm-hmm. you're parents, your mother still lives? Uh, my parents live in parents? Um, in Birmingham. In they're Birmingham. currently downstairs. Oh, in, oh I'm sorry. To <laughs> in the books. No, they're, they're sitting quietly with yeah. their iPads. Yeah. And you chose to have your launch date here at the Alabama Books. Well, I will tell Birmingham. you why. Because, you know, Jake was there for Eating the Cheshire Cat. Yeah. He has been there for 20 years. And when American Housewife came out, he was the first to call. He remembered. Nobody else remembered. He remembered. I wish you had been downstairs to see him greet my mother. Yeah. Well, he was telling me before you got here, he said, you know, um, her name is also Helen. Yes. Yeah, the original Helen. He said the original Helen is, is um, he didn't use the he euphemism. Saying, he said something very nice, but yes. I'm trying to remember what the word was. A hoot. <laughs> yeah, a car and a character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then when you said character, I didn't want to call your mom a drunk. No, so. see, I, 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 <laughs> she's someone who's naturally funny. Okay. A character is someone who's funny because she's tipsier right. than a... And then know. something else is just an unspeakable. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so you, you can still at least consider Alabama, I think, in some ways, your home. Yes, um, yes. And then, obviously, Alabama booksmith, Jake, uh, is a is a true friend to yes. writers, and if you're anywhere within driving distance of Birmingham, you should go to this bookstore yes. and buy Helen's book. It will be signed. Yes. Every book here is signed. Um, the but, first thing I said when I walked in the door to him was, don't let me leave without Michael Knight's new book, because yeah. I knew he was just through here, and I love his books. Um, so that's on my list. 
What stereotypes have you run into in New York that people have had about you as, as coming from Alabama? Your, your husband is a New Yorker. <laughs> yes, my husband is first-generation Greek-American oh, wow. okay. and uh, born born in New York to uh, Greek immigrants, and which our, our backgrounds just couldn't be more different because my family has been in the South since... I think 1738. Mm-hmm. We have been around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there are a lot of antiques, none, none in the New York City apartment. Yeah. My husband has made me a better person in okay. a way because I think Greeks, the, his Greek family, they're all very welcoming. I mean, we are very welcoming too, but my husband grew up in a two bedroom apartment with five people living in it. Wow. Um, his grandmother was there, his parents, his brothers, you know, any passing relative. The door was always open. And for me, I throw a good party and like to have a gathering, but I also really like my privacy. Mm-hmm. I need to know that you're coming over before you come over, where I think his culture is just the door is always open, you know, come on over, uh, which is great, which is just great. And I don't know if it's a New York thing or if it's just my husband. I can nurse a grudge like a newborn baby. Yeah. <laughs> I will, you know. If something's been done wrong to you, you might forget it, but I'll remember it. Mm-hmm. And my husband really is someone who lets things go. Yeah. Now, uh, when y'all got married, mm-hmm. I mean, I, those of us who don't know much about Greek culture, mm-hmm. uh, our cues are kind of taken from my big fat Greek wedding. So what happens <laughs> when a Greek wedding, you know, meets a Southern? Well, we wedding? got. It was very different because I do think Southerners uh, have the reputation of having huge weddings, which is true. I had a very small wedding. Okay. We married two months after 9-11. Oh, wow. So down to the courthouse, through all that security, we went uh, to get the marriage certificate, and we just wanted something very quiet. We did marry in the Greek church. George Stephanopoulos' father oh, was really? the priest at the time, and he That's married sweet. us in the middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. There were, I think, 10 people at the actual wedding. My mother remembers watching us, because uh, if you remember... My big fat Greek wedding in the wedding ceremony that you walk in a circle with little mm-hmm. crowns. And we did that. And she said, Oh, Helen Michelle, it was like watching you on the merry go round. <laughs> <laughs> and the Greek ceremony was in Greek. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. and, and I would say, he would say something in Greek, and I would say yes, and then he would translate what I had just said yes to. So, for example... So you know you were committing to. Yes, apparently I committed to raising my children Greek, oh. not a problem, yeah. and to obeying my husband as he obeys his God. Yeah, okay. Oh. <laughs> you, can ask him how, you can ask him how that's going. You go into that a little bit. Um, so, a little bit more about, I guess, the, the Southern Lady Code and the mm-hmm. reputation that women in the South have for being Passive-aggressive isn't the right word, but, you know... Uh, I, you know I hear that a lot, um, passive-aggressive, when it comes to the code, and I don't think yeah, that's that not... I'm being passive-aggressive. I think I'm telling you exactly what you need to hear, but in a way that you can swallow it, like um, like poison in a teaspoon of sugar. Mm-hmm. So, for example... <laughs> I'm the new Mary Poppins. Yeah, okay, so, for song. example, you know, if I said to you, don't be alone in an office with your boss because he's handsy, what would you think that I meant? That he is, uh, you know, a potential me-too candidate. That's correct. Yeah. That is correct. And women 
aren't always comfortable saying such a thing because you kind of struggled to say it just then. Yeah. Like, what exactly am I going to say? Sexual predator. So, yeah. What am I going to say? I was watching you. Yeah. And it's so much easier to say he's handsy or he's a charmer. Mm. And it just gets your point across because sometimes we're just not comfortable. Same thing with, you know, growing up, I look back on what adults were saying about boys in my life. Well, he's respectful, he's artistic, yeah. he likes to be alone, and it was code for gay. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that, but people aren't comfortable saying it. So we're not being passive aggressive, you just have to listen to us. Right, and learn to speak the language. Yes, just listen to me. You, you were recently on 1A talking mm-hmm. about uh, language mm-hmm. and, and the way that it's used. Is there Are there similarities? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've spent any time in the Midwest. You lived in Colorado for a while. But yeah. are there similarities between Southern hospitality and, and Midwestern nice? <laughs> we all like cheese. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, true. I'm not sure. I, I haven't spent a lot of time in the Midwest. And, but I think of Fargo. I do think yeah. of that is a classic example. I love that movie. Francis McDormand's character was always so polite and yet she was the boss you think yeah. about Kira Cedric who played a southerner in was her show The Closer, the Closer. Yeah. and she would have a convict in a room but she would say thank you please be polite but she would you know kill him with kindness yeah. and get her her point across so you know I guess those are similarities yeah. and that, yeah. that we can be respectful and yet serious right and the Coen brothers, I mean, being Minnesotans, mm-hmm. uh, obviously did a great job with Fargo, but they also did a great job with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, yes. And uh, Lady oh, Killers, and they and hit the South pretty well. The best too. Raising Arizona. And Raising Arizona. Oh, so, yeah, delicious. so they, they seem to get that that mentality can yes. exist mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, what is next for you? What's after this book? I'll never tell. Okay. <laughs> I do have I do have some ideas. What will you be doing all day? <laughs> um, I I'm working on something new. Okay. I have an idea for a little bit more of this. We'll see how this goes. If it's well received, I would love sure. to write more nonfiction. I would love to be, you know, the Southern Lady David Sedaris. Sure. <laughs> and I have an idea for a novella. Okay. I don't know if I could do a whole novel again. It's a big commitment. Well, you're—I mean—you're getting rave reviews. <laughs> Ann Patchett, of course, the patron saint of uh, Southern writers, is mm-hmm. uh, very. Well, I don't I remember exactly what she said. She said she loved it. Yeah. She, <laughs> uh, she said she couldn't put it down. Uh, confirm the veracity of that. So she was very, very high praise. But it's a—it's a wonderful book. Uh, so everybody, please go buy it or buy it from Alabama Booksmith. And thank you, Helen, for chatting with us Thank today. you so much. Thanks again to Helen Ellis for joining us this week. Now I want to turn it over to my favorite Southern lady, Robin Hammontree. Robin reads roughly 200 books a year, so I wanted to get her review of Southern Lady Code. After all, what's it matter to you what this Southern man thinks about it, right? Here's Robin's take. As someone who has lived all over the country, I always love reading books by folks who've done the same. I often say that people should live in a place both more liberal and more conservative than they feel in order to determine where they truly stand. Helen Ellis has done that, and I think she does something special here. She gives us a glimpse of what that's taught her and makes us laugh in the process. I don't usually laugh out loud while reading. While sitting on my back porch reading Southern Lady Code, I found myself cracking up, both about the stories of life in New York City and the stories of life in Tuscaloosa. Whether she's writing about her personal quest to organize her life, losing a trench coat that happens to look exactly like every other trench coat in New York, 
or watching a friend in court. Ellis has a way of transporting us to where she is and how she felt in those moments. In the end, it feels less like we're laughing at the story and more like we're laughing with her, like we're old friends. And what could possibly be more Southern than that? Thanks again for listening. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly. It was edited by Reckon Radio producer Amy Yerkinen. Our theme song, Dereconstructed, was produced by Sub Pop Records and is written and performed by Alabama's own Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. You can find more of their music at www.theglorifires.com. And join us next week when we take a deep dive with Lee himself. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want more conversations like this, join the Reckon Women Facebook group. I'm John, and thanks again.